You know, when you are in Easter season, we think in terms of the following sequence. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, betrayal, his trial, and his sufferings, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. But what is often missing in that chain of events that we call the Passion of Christ is his burial. I don't know about you, but I really didn't pay much attention to it. Why? Because for us, we believe what's really important is resurrection of Christ. So our mind goes from death on the cross to the resurrection. But as I was meditating on John 19 and 20 last week, I've noticed that so many verses were given to burial. And burial of Christ really receives much attention from all four Gospels. So I thought, maybe there's a reason for it. And is there something that God wants us to know through Christ's burial was my question. And it's one of those Sundays that week, this past week, going in, I really didn't know whether I would have something meaningful to say this Sunday or not, because I really didn't, in my own Christian life, didn't hear anything about Christ's burial. And today I am not going to go through the verses that I've read, but the fact that he was buried. And he was not buried underground, into the ground, but as you have heard, into the cave. So as I was thinking about his burial, what came to my mind first was that sentence in the Apostles' Creed. You know how it says it, he was crucified, died, and was buried. Each one gets attention. He's crucified and he's dead or he died and he was buried. Since the Reformation, after a millennium of idolatry or sacerdotalism of Rome, and as you know, the medieval European society, 5% knights, 5% clergy members, and rest of 90% of people are laborers. Illiteracy rate was high, and, and during the Reformation and afterwards, what did they teach their people? One of the primary methods of teaching their people was through catechism. Everyone, almost everyone we know of, reformers, they all wrote their own catechism. So let me just give you the examples. Martin Luther, you know Martin Luther. He has his small catechisms. When you look at it in a big picture, these are the things that he taught his people. German, farmers. Part 1, Ten Commandments. Part 2, Apostles' Creed. Part 3, the Lord's Prayer. You see, since the Reformation... Almost all confessions and catechisms, they all teach these three. Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, 
and the Lord's Prayer. Calvin, he has Catechism of the Church of Geneva. You look at it, what did he teach? First part, Apostles' Creed. Second part, Ten Commandments. Third part, Lord's Prayer. And he has a couple more. Heidelberg Catechism, one of the oldest of Reformed Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, it has three parts. Misery of man, redemption of man, and gratitude due from man. And it teaches Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Now, our own, Westminster. Confession is too big, but larger catechism really has two parts to it. First part, Man, what man ought to believe, and the second part, the duty of man. And it teaches Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, but not the Apostles' Creed. Throughout, ever since Reformation, people taught these three things, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and Ten Commandments. But our own, it does not really have that the Apostles' Creed. And listen to why. This is Van Dixon. He is now Westminster professor. And he says the difference, the main difference between Westminster's catechisms and earlier catechisms has to do with the Apostles' Creed. The standard practice of catechisms written earlier had been to expound the Apostles' Creed phrase by phrase, just as they did the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. But ours, but the Westminster Assembly decided to exclude the Apostles' Creed because it, though scriptural, was not scriptural. For hundreds of years, Christians sitting in the pews, they heard pastors teaching them the Ten Commandments, which I tried to highlight past few weeks and months, Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. But for us, we really don't teach it in our own catechism for good reason. But what's interesting is that if you grew up in any kind of Presbyterian or Reformed churches in your order of worship, you would have recited probably Apostles' Creed. And there is, though I said there is that Emphasis on crucified, died, and was buried. And there is that phrase that is really confusing. It says, he descended to hell. So, in the first part, I want to explain that just briefly so everybody would understand. What does that mean? After he died, he literally went into hell to preach the gospel to them. And where, did, where, where does it come from in the Bible? Only reference that people say that Apostles' Creed, by the way, is not written by the apostles. It's just an apostolic teaching. That's what it is. Summary of our confession and faith. It's really from 1 Peter 3, and as you see it on your reference, verse 19. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That's the only possible reference uh, for the Apostles' Creed to say that he descended to him. Then you have to now study. You have to look it up. What do people say? You know, what do uh, the uh, commentaries say or the theologians say? You know, you have to look it up. You have to understand. 
Do they agree with this and that? And there are multiple opinions on that. What does the Westminster Confession teach? Actually, there is that summary in larger catechism which we have already read. If you could go back there. In larger catechism, question 50, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? His humiliation consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. They knew the phrase, obviously. The divines in the Westminster Assembly, they knew the Apostles' Creed. And what they are saying is, we understand that phrase, he descended into hell, really refers to what? His burial. Not literal descent into hell and proclaim the gospel is not really the position of our own confession. I could say many things, obviously. I could cite this person. I could cite that person. But the benefit of our church or churches like us when we have confession is that you don't have to hang everything on one individual's opinion. What does R.C. Sproul say? What does uh, John MacArthur say, for example? Rather, we say, what did our previous generations of believers confess? What did they confess? Our teaching is clear that rather than literal descent, we understand that descending into hell really meaning to Christ being buried and remaining under the power of death for three days. So, I would just quote J. Voss, who's commenting on this larger catechism, question 50. He says this, Our catechism teaches that the words, He descended into hell, refer to Christ being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The word hell being understood as the realm of the power of death. So first section, conclusion, is that. He descended into hell really is confusing everyone. Him remaining under the power of death for three days really is like descending into hell is what our larger catechism teaches and that's my position as well for clarification. After that, my mind went to that three days. Everywhere you see he was dead, crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And as you know, his resurrection was after three days, after crucifixion. So my investigation this week went to that three days. I wanted to understand, where does it come from? Past few weeks and months, we tried to do the connection between the old and new. So I spoke on Jesus' own exodus, or Jesus' own Passover, trying to tie the old and new and how there's a continuous one act of God's salvation in the entire redemptive history. So I was thinking, is there a verse in the Old Testament that talked about Christ's death should remain for three days? So I've been searching and what you have in the bulletin is the possible references. First, 
I was able to find Hosea 6.1, verse 2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. When you look it up, commentaries, they will say different things. Whether this really is the background for Christ's three-day burial period, or people will say, no, it is not really about Christ's death, but it is about the quickness of healing and restoration that God has in store for repenting Israel. I believe that is the case. The latter would be the case. And just look at 1 Corinthians 15. As Apostle Paul is summarizing the gospel, he says this. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, after that, really I couldn't find anything in the Old Testament that predicts three-day period for Christ's burial. There was no, as far as I could tell, so I've been searching everywhere. And, and what I was able to find about three-day prophecy was found where? Can you guess? In Christ's own words. That's where you will find him constantly talking about, after three days I will rise again. So I have given you all these verses and I'm going to read them. To give you the sense how, how important this is. And look with me. First place in Matthew. I'm just quoting Matthew just to give you that sequence. But just look at Matthew. And people were demanding signs. And remember, and Jesus rebukes them. Verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. D.A. Carson comments on that reference to burial, not his descent into Hades. Now then, look with me following portions. Matthew 16. Do you know what happens in Matthew 16? Peter confesses Christ. Remember that? The gates of Hades will not prevail upon you. And that is the turning point. After that confession, Jesus now teaches this. And listen to this. How many times Jesus predicts this explicitly from that time. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And notice, notice the, the how it says, and be what? Not rise, but be raised up on the third day. Remember that. It is in passive. Chapter 17. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, that's him, right? Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be what? raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew 20. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, 
Very important, right? Just them. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and it will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Christ's own predictions about three-day period was so well known, even his enemies knew about it. Matthew 26, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Chapter 27, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down if you are the Son of God. The last one was spoken by chapter 27, 6, 3, by the people, Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. And so we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, referring to Christ, said, after three days I am to rise again. So this was not a secret, just disciple, you know, I'm just telling you my secret to my 12 disciples. That was not the case. Everybody knew. People knew, his disciples knew, and he even Enemies knew what? That he would be killed and he would be raised on the third day. It was a public knowledge. Now, by this time, I was putting these things together and there is no reference in the Old Testament. And Jesus talks a lot about his own death, three days, and I just couldn't put it together. And the commentaries that I own will not explain what the significance is for three days. Is there some kind of meaning? Nobody, at least the books that I have, none of them were explaining. So I was really, you know, tired and I really didn't know how to proceed. So in despair, I googled it. When all the commentaries give in, I just Googled it and said, what is the significance of three But uh, the website that I, I, was, I was invited to was godquestions.org. And you know, like you, I really didn't pay attention. Website? Okay. Why three days? Growing up, what I heard from my pastors was that in Jewish custom, three-day period was the time that people thought their spirit will linger on earth. And after three days, they descend to Hades, Sheol, whatever. So three days really means that Jesus was really dead. That's what I've heard. And GodQuestions.org, it says that. In the first, resurrection after three days of death proved to Jesus' opponents that he truly rose from the dead. Why? According to Jewish tradition, a person's soul spirit remained with his body three days and so on. So I said, okay, that I knew, but... I don't know if it's true or not. But it really confirms that, remember, he delayed when he heard Lazarus was dead to make sure that people know he is really dead, to, to count him as res- really putting as a miracle. So really, three days really serves that as a confirmation that Jesus really died. And Jesus was not in coma. He, was not, he didn't faint. He was not resuscitated, but it was a resurrection of Christ himself. So three days, okay, that's the first part that he was saying, the, the author. Second point that the person was saying was this. 
His resurrection on the third day took place on the first day of the week, illustrating a new beginning and new life to all who trust in Him. That second point is a profound point. And I thought whoever wrote this, there was no name, really knew his theology because that is very significant. So I thought, oh, Mark, but I'm not going to comment on it because I will do it in coming weeks. The third point was this. This is what that person said. Third, because three days is what Jesus himself prophesied. That's when the light came on for me. Until then, I was trying to find connection from the old and new. But the, but the author of that website was the significance of that three-day period. It really is a passing remark. It was really one sentence, and that person says, because three days is what Jesus himself prophesied. And it really hit me at that point. Right. Jesus was that eschatological prophet of Deuteronomy 18. I was trying to find some Old Testament passage to see the three-day significance, if there is one, and I couldn't find one. But the author was saying, you know what? He was raised on the third day because that's what Jesus said. It is what Jesus prophesied. And what came to my mind was larger catechism, 42. Let me read that portion to you. Why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ, Messiah, because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure, so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church. In the estate, both of his humiliation and exaltation. Three offices of Christ. But it's hard to connect the dots. What Jesus did, as you have seen in Matthew, is that that three-day prophecy was Christ exercising his own authority as the prophet of God. He is self-sufficient God-man, and he does not need any kind of Old Testament verses to fulfill it. But he pronounces his own death, he predicts it to be three-day period, and he doesn't say, I will rise again but I will be raised by Father on the third day. There are portions of scriptures where, a couple of places where it is said in active form. He rose again from the dead. But by and large, 98% of times in the New Testament, Christ's resurrection is always in passive. It is Father raising the Son as vindication of His substitutionary death. And He concludes it in this way. Aside from these two reasons, the Word of God does not explicitly state the reason for the necessity of three days between Jesus' death and resurrection. And he walks away. He's a cool guy. There's nothing just other than what Christ said. Oh, that's, that's okay. But it got me thinking. It really opened my way of thinking, at least. What's the implication of that? The terms of his humiliation. Suffering, death, and burial were revealed or known to him. Did you know that? 
We read these things and thinking, oh, Jesus is saying that he will be raised on the third day. But that really is the tip of an iceberg. What that means is that he knew in full detail what he will go through as he will be laying down his life on his own. Where and how? Primarily through the reading of the Old Testament, right? He had to read God's Word as the Son of God. And as I've been saying, Psalm 22, read it and be terrified and how in detail it prophesies about Christ's own suffering. He will even hear his own, own bones breaking. Think about that. And probably from, you know, servant songs and other places. Also by communing with God and maybe some of the details were known to him. When I realized that, I wrote down these applications for all of us. His burial for three days and its significance for all of us as Christians. He died and was buried and remained under the power of death, yes or no corruption for three days. What does that mean for us? First, it means Christ's faith. Son, the son had to trust in the father's promise of raising him after three days. It must point to that great pactum salutis, as we say, the covenant of redemption between father and the son from all eternity, assigning the position who will be the acting subject of this redemption and Christ willingly, thankfully, putting upon himself to be the acting agent of human redemption of his church. It must go back to that council of peace, as we say. But going in, as he was predicting all of these, knowing in full detail that he will spend three days in the grave, he must now put his faith and trust in the Father. That is really a, a counterintuitive thing for us to think about. We don't want to think of a son of God, obviously. He will die and he will be raised. But he had to trust in Father's promise. What if Father changes his mind? This is a crazy thing. But you see, Jesus going to the cross, knowing that he would spend three days separated from the presence of God, the Father that he knew for all eternity, he had to trust his Father. So it highlights Christ's own faith in his Father, in the Father. So God was not, God the Father was not simply faithful to Israelites or to uh, even his church. First and foremost, God the Father was faithful to his Son. What that means is that for us, we could trust our God. God's faithfulness means that we could trust Him and His words. And I think this really could open up many applications for all of us. We live in a day, day and age where vows don't mean a thing. Marriage vows are always everywhere broken easily doesn't mean a thing until it doesn't make sense to that person. Really, words do not mean anything these days. 
You know, we have seen and witnessed today two families coming in. And I was really thankful during the process of past few weeks and months how they took it so seriously. And they wanted that vow and coming into a church and membership, they took it so seriously. And I thought about why do people break their promises and vows and wars? Why do you think people do that? It's not simply because they want to break it, because people change. But God does not change. If anything, if we could trust anything in this world, is that we could trust our God and in His word, in His faithfulness, proven over and over again, and even in His burial, going into the tomb, Christ had to trust His Father. Second thing, Christ's courage, it really flows out of that. Faith must contain certain measure of courage. If faith is what Hebrews 11.1 1 says, the conviction of things not seen, taking a step forward in faith by faith requires faith and certain measure of courage mixed in it. And I'm not talking about saving faith in narrow sense, but in Christian life. More careful person were accused the courageous people as reckless. And more courageous people will accuse the other side as timid. But when you meditate on Christ's burial, his own faith and trust in the Father, in his promise, also accentuates Christ's courage. Why? He's been saying, I'll be raised three days, three days, three days. What that means is, when son says that and predicts his own death for three days, what that means is that the Father and the Holy Spirit cannot touch it. Obviously, in every act of God, whole trinity, they're involved. Every three person, each one is involved. They are not separated. But for three days, a barrier really teaches us that no one really could help. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has to preserve him, as we have seen, so as not to decay. But Father's really loving the Son, so he wants to raise him up right away, immediately. But he has to honor the Son's own word. So it, in this period, there, really, there's nobody who could help him. He's alone, if I could say that. Faith, courage, and all of us, a faith-filled Christian is a courageous Christian. Third, third day, if that is the tip of iceberg, and if he knew in all detail, and he doesn't say, but he knew plenty. It's one thing to go through some kind of pain, not knowingly, but with full detail, and what came to my mind was, Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. Oh, now I understand why he was so grieved and distressed. It was not simply the fact that I will die or I'll go to the cross or I'll be crucified. But if he knew in full detail what he would go through, not only the physical pain, but shame and all the 
spiritual sufferings that he has to go through, then it only makes sense that he will be, this is the verse Matthew, in Matthew, he began to be grieved and distressed. When you look up that word distressed, it really means fear. They don't want to translate that into fear because you don't want to attribute fear to Christ. You know, you don't want to say Christ was fearful. But grieving and distressed really means he was fearful. About to taste death and hellfire. Separation from the Father. He has to trust his Father and his promise. He has to be courageous Christ. Not only simply die and be raised next moment, but stay for three days in the grave by himself, if I may say that, though the Father and Spirit are not separated. And when you look at Gethsemane prayer, conclusion is this. How does he overcome his fear in Gethsemane? By praying. Then prayer enables Christians to obey. That is the chief end of prayer. What is? Obedience. That's what he's doing. He talks about temptation there. Stay awake to his disciples. What was his temptation? Not to drink the cup that the Father is giving him. He wants to walk away, humanly speaking. But he knows he has to obey, and he wants to obey. That was pectum solidus from all eternity. But humanly, he can do it. So what does he do? He prays. I hope and pray that it will give you uh, some kind of a, probably you knew that, but new perspective on prayer. Praying Christian is obedient Christian, or at least trying to obey what God wants you to do. Let us be praying church so that we could be obeying church. That turns me to my final point. If I could say anything, Christ three day teaches us Christ. Christ's endurance. It's easy to, easy to endure when things are going well. But we all understand things are not so easy in the world. Job situation, your co-workers, your bosses, managers above you, and co-workers. And some people are just not, just not nice. Churches too. It's not an easy thing to endure. And as I was thinking about this, you know, my pastor always told us, all of us, my first church as a youth pastor over there a few blocks down, prominent pastor. Now, he passed last year because of COVID, but he always told us to all young, 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 young pastors, you know, how you could succeed in your ministry. One thing. All smart people will be gone. All handsome pastors will be gone. But he would say, you need to persevere in it. You can't quit. And he was saying to all of us, all the smartest pastors who went through all the education, none of them remain in New York. It's hard to do ministry in New York. And he was referring to himself, not really proudly, but he was saying, I wasn't good at anything. 
But I stayed. I endured it all. And I've seen it. When church stands, people, it requires God's extraordinary providence, right? You know what my prayer is? I'll probably edit this out too. God, don't let me quit is my prayer, people. I don't know. Right now, everything's fine. None of you are harassing me. <laughs> None of you are calling me, emailing me, texting me, saying, quit. I hate you. <laughs> you know, I don't, nobody's doing that. But God knows when that will happen. You know, we live in a fallen world. If Christ three-day burial teaches you anything that is to endure it. I don't know, there could be time for you to quit, but I don't know when that is, I don't know. But this instance teaches all of us, don't quit, don't leave. I will say one more thing and I'll be done. You know, the, you know why the Chans and the Tangs were able to join in to our church today, even though we do not deserve them? You know why they were able to join today? Humanly speaking, it's because the rest of you endured. Asked Elder Tom to teach a, a session, a, one session in our membership class to tell them and tell me RPC's history. I was around, I was around somewhere. So I knew this church from the inception of the church, I knew all ins and outs. But I wanted to hear from Elder Tom himself. And when he spoke to us at the end, there was nothing but God's providence and God's provision. And your endurance, the rest of you. People who didn't quit, who people, people who didn't leave, but people who stayed. After all that had happened in between. Can I do it? Me, Sam? I, don't, I, I can't trust my own self. I know how weak I am. You know how weak I was when I was coming into your church. I was taking literally a refuge in this church. But guy, by God's good providence, I don't know. I'm, I am here today, uh, standing here, trying to preach the word to you. May God honor it, but let us be a persevering church. That is my plea to you. And as you have done, pray for you, pray for me, pray for each other, that we may learn something from Christ's endurance. And let us imitate that Christ who remained under the power of death for three full days. Let's pray.